This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look. Think as the world expects us to think. We'll arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started, as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com, on Facebook, and download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is Russ Bradbird, a former assistant under two Mount Rushmore of mid-major college basketball-worthy coaches, a creative writing professor, a fiddle player, and an author. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. It's good to be here, Andrew. Thank you. So you're a creative writing professor at New Mexico State University. That's right. I've started, uh, got into it sort of accidentally, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I've been there, I, th- I guess, since maybe 2008, I've been a, a professor at New Mexico State. Okay, I thought it was a little bit before that. What did you do between the time that you stopped coaching? Well, I, w- I was an instructor for a while, you know, which doesn't technically count as a professor. So I t- but uh, yeah, I got my graduate degree, my master's in fine arts and fiction writing in 2002, went to Ireland for a couple of years. I uh, lived in Ireland, then came back and, and got married and started teaching classes here and there. So I, I was, I, I've been affiliated with New Mexico State more or less, either through basketball or English since 1994. And how many sections do you teach? Well, this semester, sadly, I have to teach three. So every now and then I get to teach two if there's some, for some reason. But in general, I do what everybody else does. I teach three classes a semester. And that's considered full-time? That is for professors. Now, instructors, it's a funny system because instructors teach four classes a semester but get paid less. And the, the, the professors teach three classes a semester and get paid more. But it has to do with who has a Ph.D. and who's been publishing books. So I've been publishing books, and that's how I became a professor. I'm the only professor in the department that does not have a Ph.D., so I'm a bit of an – although I really like it there and feel comfortable, I'm also a bit of an outlier because I'm the only full-time professor without a Ph.D. And in the English department, I would imagine publishing doesn't mean the same as publishing if you're in the sociology department. You're not doing research. Well, some some people are. I mean, I'm not because I'm doing more creative stuff. But that I think that's a really interesting point is that my colleagues are more likely to be – writing about water imagery in Shakespeare or something like that, you know, that, that's a little more techy and more in-depth. And I'm trying to tell a story in a more of a, I don't want to say pop, but sort of maybe more of a, 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 a you know, sort of a user-friendly way, whereas I'm, I'm not writing for other academics. And I think oftentimes other professors are often writing for other academics. But that's not, that's also true for my colleagues in creative writing. You know, Brandon Hobson, the great uh, Cherokee novelist who just was a National Book Award finalist, He's doing the same thing I am, and my wife is a poet, and Richard Greenfield, the great poet on our staff, so they're not writing for other academics so much as whereas I think most of the most of the, on the academic side of things in the lit lit department or rhetoric, they're more likely to be writing for for journals and that kind of thing well, oddly enough, uh, I've read three of your books, all had to do with basketball, and given you're a creative writing professor, kind of odd that most that I know of that you've been published uh, books that you have written that have been published have been nonfiction. 
That's right. I have, I have one book of fiction. I'm still working on this novel that I can't see, quite get finished and find a home for. So I'm, I'm working on sort of a uh, satire of a novel that I've been working on and off on for a decade. But yeah, I have, it's funny because I was trained to write fiction at New Mexico State, never had a nonfiction class. But I quickly fell into, oh, this looks like a good idea. And so I've been telling, I've been writing fiction and nonfiction, but it does seem yeah, that the three of my four books are books of nonfiction. It seems to me that uh, given the three nonfiction books you've written were about basketball, would it be safe to say that you might have a knack or an interest in writing a, a fictional a story about basketball? Well, yeah, the, uh, make it, take it. My book of fiction is set at a fictional university. But, but I, I, you know, I, I do think, yes, basketball is the backdrop of all of my books. But, for example, in the new book, in the gun violence book, in, in All the Dreams We've Dreamed, there's only two or three pages of actual basketball. It's set, it's in the world of basketball, but there's not actually basketball being played in the book. So one of the things, I, and I do that deliberately just because I thought, to me, actually the least interesting part of basketball is actually the game. It's the personalities and the issues of race and power dynamics and, and age differences and those kinds of things that make that I, and I think for me, in retrospect now, Andrew, that basketball was always a window into a different culture, partly mostly black culture, but playground culture and the culture of sports. And so I've always been, even when I worked for Don Haskins or Lou Henson, I was never as interested in, you know, what zone offense they were running. I just liked to, I liked hearing the stories and knowing their histories. And to me, that's always been more compelling. I couldn't tell you, I, I don't think I could remember many of Lou Henson's offenses, but I've got some great Lou Henson stories. And I, and I think that's, to me, that's always been more interesting in retrospect. Now I know that, you know, that was, that that's, was true at the time. I think it made me a little bit of a, a outlier, a little bit of a weirdo. I'd be the coach who'd get on the airplane and crack open a book rather than a sports illustrated or I'd be the coach that I, when I went to my room for a road game or recruiting trip, I almost never turned on the television. I always got the bo a book out and read, read the book during my free time. Have you found with the digital age and with social media that's changed how often you read? I know with me, I used to plow through books, and I'm really kind of embarrassed to say, you know, as we talked about before we started, I'm I'm a huge consumer of social media. I spend way too much time on Facebook. And I don't read norm, uh, nearly as much as I used to. I, I happen to think, and I tell my students this, but I'm mostly talking to myself, Andrew, is that when uh, I think the Internet and social media is my biggest, uh, particular, not just social media, but also the New York Times or whatever. Uh, what the you know, I look at ESPN every day, and that's my biggest enemy for being a writer or reader is because I think there's something about the Internet that makes your brain go that your viewers can't see, but it makes your brain go sort of back and forth, side to side. And and I think writing and reading is really about sustained concentration. And so I know what happens to me. Someone will send me something on Facebook. Oh, look at this funny thing. It's two minutes. Two minutes? I don't have two minutes. You know, where, where, it's, you know, where it's taking me 10 years on this novel I'm working on. And so I think what it's done is it's shortened our attention span. I know for me, I don't want to speak of other people, but it's shortened my attention span. And so when I get done looking at my Facebook page and my email, I'll pick up the book to read and I cannot concentrate on that book. And so what I find, I, I make myself do it. I read the first page three or four times to fall back into the rhythm of, okay, now I'm going to turn my phone off. This is going to be uninterrupted for an hour here. I'm going to only read. So I find, I think, uh, you're not the only one. I find that, that uh, the Internet is really my enemy. It's the enemy of sustained attention. And so so what I'm trying to do, like as a fiddle player, I'm trying to, you know, it's, a, it's an old old person's instrument, and I'm trying to stick with it for years and years and years, and the Internet is not conducive to that. And so I find myself, you know, I need a net nanny. 
can you maybe you can recommend a good net nanny that would turn off my internet after a certain time every day and um, yeah but but it, it it spins your head around and so I'm I'm trying to I'm constantly trying to get myself to stop doing it. And, and somebody with uh, attention deficit disorder, disorder like me, it's even uh, more difficult. You started to talk about your book, All the Dreams We've Dreamed, and we're definitely going to come back to that because that seems to be, from what I can tell on social media, on Facebook, really the where you're putting so much of your energy. Uh, obviously, you have to work and you have a family, but there seems to be a lot of energy put forth towards that, and that's something I definitely want to talk about a little bit later. Let's go back. You're a Chicagoland native from the city? Yes. In, in the city of Chicago? Yeah, I, I went to Chicago Public Schools for 11 of my 13 years until we moved to Philadelphia. So I, yeah, and I taught in the Chicago Public Schools and coached in the Chicago Public Schools. So I've never lived in this, never lived in the suburbs. Not that I'm from, not that I'm from a gritty, you know, gritty or rough part of town. I'm from a very sort of middle class area, but a very, also a very diverse area. And Chicago is all about neighborhoods. It is. That's what right. What neighborhood are you from? Well, I'm from. I I grew up in a neighborhood called Forest Glen at first, and then well, first I lived in South Shore on the South Side until I was in second grade. Then we moved to Forest Glen, which is on the far northwest side, and then all through uh, until I became a college coach, I lived in Albany Park, where my the high school I went to and the college I went to were in Albany Park, and where I sort of settled before I first came to the Southwest was Albany Park. And they're all, you know, Albany Park and Forest Glen are very close to each other. And now I go, I live there every summer in a neighborhood called Ravenswood, which is also on the North side. So I've never, the, you know, I've never, the suburbs have never appealed to me. And I think I was really lucky that my parents didn't, you know, there's a lot of sort of white flight going on when I was a kid. And my parents, I think, understood the value of going to a sort of a United Nations kind of high school you know, when I say yeah, there's, there was just a, it was just a very diverse high school. Well, you can't talk about Chicago without talking about Chicago pizza. And <laughs> I, I have a lot of family in Chicago. I've actually spent uh, quite a bit of time in Chicago uh, during my 46 years. I would spend, uh, for a couple of years, I spent most, uh, most of my Christmas vacations and spring breaks uh, visiting an aunt and uncle in Evanston. And um, you can't talk to somebody from Chicago without talking about Chicago pizza. And you could talk to a hundred different people and get a hundred different answers as far as who makes the best pizza. I, I'm a, I'm, I'm not even deep dish isn't enough for me. It's gotta be stuffed. And I'm a Giordano's guy. I love Giordano's and I go, I used to get this stuffed spinach. We're off on a different topic here, but, but I will say when I first came to Las Cruces, I thought, Oh no, you know, I guess I won't eat pizza again until I get back to Chicago. But I found, I think Zafiro's is very good and, uh, uh, Pistachio's is good. And I love Lorenzo's, which I think is, is, is really good. So, but yeah, the, the stuff, I think, but also stuffed pizza, I think is a young man's food, Andrew. I don't, I think now that I'm, you know, it used to be, you know, I could just completely gorge on, on uh, thick crust pizza, but now anymore, you know, I wind up with the, with the thin, with the thinner, thinner, I can't eat like I used to, but yeah, I love, I love, uh, I love Giordano's and Chicago is famous, is famous for their pizza. It was one of the blessings of, for me of growing up in Chicago is we would go out to eat once a month and we never went for hamburgers or steaks. It was always for Korean food or Greek food or Italian food. My, my dad was very interested in, in ethnic food. He just sort of saw the world to him. The world was the, the, the geography meant different cuisine. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with him. And yeah. I think that we're actually pretty lucky in Las Cruces that in the time I've lived here 20 years, there have been a handful of Indian places, which I love, but they don't seem to last. But the fact that we have two Thai places, we had a Korean place. We have two Vietnamese places. Um, got a couple Mediterranean. I think we're pretty lucky. Now, when did you get started with uh, organized basketball? 
Well, as as a kid, I sort of fell in love with the game, but I got a little bit of a late start for, I didn't really start playing until eighth grade. And so I got a little bit of a late start and just played one year of high school basketball. I was able to make the, the, the sophomore team when I was a sophomore, but got cut after that for varsity teams and then wound up uh, as sort of, if there is such a thing as a division three walk-on, it's the lowest level of life in the athletic universe. I was a division three walk-on at a school called, called North Park College, which our list, no, none of our listeners will have heard of, but that we became a national power in small college basketball. I was the worst player on the team, but we won three national championships in a row. I was only on one of the national championships. I'll tell you how bad I was, Andrew. Is I got uh, I got cut as a senior in college. Now, who gets cut as this? But but the thing was, I knew at the time I wanted to be a coach, and so to be around these championship teams uh, was a really great blessing for me so during the game you know most bench warmers go sit at the end of the bench i always sat next to the coach and the, the head coach and the assistant coach because i just wanted to listen to what they were saying and they were brilliant coaches there was a man named dan mccarroll and, and his assistant was bosco de and they were really shrewd you know they were so i you know people always talk about lou henson and don haskins but i had i was really lucky that you know it was a historic team that we won three national championships in a, in a row in division three basketball and so that's what really got me interested in it and i think there is something to i had high expectations like i thought we were i thought i was supposed to win and of course we're supposed to win the championship i do think there's something about you know getting used what you're used to and your your pedigree that sort of makes you uh and so i was i've been very lucky to have been around great coaches when i first got started sounds to me a lot like uh my dad when i was a kid used to tell me that some of the best major league managers and coaches were guys who weren't the best players and because they didn't have necessarily the physical skills to excel and be stars, they spent a lot of their time learning the game and learning fundamentals and, and learning strategy. And, and that's what kind of made them have the knowledge that was necessary to become a coach. And it's sounding to me like that might be the case with you. I think that's very true. And, and not just that, but I think it gives you the patience. Is that oftentimes with coaches, you know, it's it's easy to get impatient and say, aren't these guys ever going to learn? And, you know, I think coaching, like like teaching is like this too, I think, is that you've got to, it, you've got to be demanding on a daily basis, but patient on, on a sort of a long-term basis. And so I think, I think by being a terrible player, it did help me. I, I mean, I, I don't think it's any secret that you know people know that Michael Jordan or Dennis Rodman, as good of players as they were, might not be good, might not be good coaches. And so I think I think that's part of it is is you've had to struggle yourself, but also I think it gives you gives you a different sense of. Uh, we talked about sustainability before, and that kind of patience to think it might take this kid a couple of years to 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 figure this out. I think that's a valuable skill. And what time period are we talking about when you graduate in college? Is this the early eighties, mid eighties? Well, I know I I know I, I know I look much younger, Andrew. But no, I, I graduated from college in nineteen eighty. Graduated, so, okay. Yeah, so I, you know, and I was I was young. I just turned twenty one. But yeah, I graduated in college in nineteen eighty. And I'll, I'll tell you that you know I coached in college basketball for fourteen seasons. But I was probably the last coach in America not to, if you can imagine this. I never did it. With, I never had a cell phone. So I'd, you know, pull over at the side of the road, throw quarters into the phone, you know, or have a little credit card thing I had to punch into the, you know, I could punch in my, my, my number. I got where I could punch in my numbers very quick. And I've always had a good facility. I could remember, I can still remember phone numbers from recruits that I called and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, but so it was, it was, it was a slightly different year. There was no social media really when I quit coaching in 2000. It was before the days of Facebook and texting people and that kind of thing. Do you think maybe it was even simpler? I mean, you can I, I can imagine now, and I've read stories about athletes of all different sports 
who are getting texts now from coaches all all day and all night, and it can almost seem like it's too much and, and um, kind of hard to filter through. I would imagine back when you were doing it, it might have been even simpler. Well, I, yes, I, I think that's very true is that I, I remember feeling overwhelmed that I could not walk away from it, that I had to – I would go back into the office to call recruits at night but try not to do it at home because I wanted to separate. Well, now – that was in the days before cell phone. There's no separation now. I don't see how guys do it. They must. I imagine they just turn their phone off. But when your phone is with you, I know it's happened with me. With a, if I have a question for Chris Jans about you know doing the Aggie Vision game or you know to talk to Casey Owens or one of the assistant coaches, uh, you know I they invariably answer me if I text them at eight or nine at night. And so I do think I do think the cell phone has tethered you to the job in ways that I would find unappealing. I always did better. With it, with, uh, with being able to walk away and do something completely different, and then come back to it, and it felt fresh to me. I've I've never understood as dedicated as I was. I don't. I've never understood how guys can just go home after the day of basketball practice and watch more basketball on TV. I've just gotten. I just grew weary of that. Well, given the time period we're talking about, you graduated college in the 1980s. If my my memory serves correctly, would there have been an opportunity for your your during your travels? Uh, I'm going to imagine by bus or probably even van doing the Division three thing. You ever get out to Vegas and have any interaction with uh, folks at Cadwallader College? No. No, but but I was in – when I was – by the time I was recruiting, I'd never been to Vegas until I started recruiting. We'd go – there was all kinds of tournaments. I'm not – I was never a fan of Vegas just because I need a little peace and quiet at the end of the day. And this totally <laughs> went over your head because, of course, I'm talking about the fictional college that Gabe, Gabe Kaplan coached when he was in Fast Break. Oh, right. Okay, well, there. Uh, I remember – I loved that movie, and I, I loved uh, I loved Gabe Kaplan. No, I'd forgotten about that. I was expecting for you to jump it's right been, on it. It's been a long time. That movie was maybe 79, maybe, or – I've got it on VHS somewhere yeah, in a box is, yeah. in my yes. house. I'll have to go back. What is it? It's a, I missed a great literary reference, right? Gabe Kaplan. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you and I've heard you recently, within the last few months, on a on a basketball podcast, talking about doing your your uh, what do you call them the scouting books or the scouting scouting reports that you would send out by mail and trying to get the attention of Lou Henson. It, well, it, yeah. When I was uh, when I left UTEP, I went back to Chicago, and I had never turned on a computer before and I didn't know how to type and I but I went I thought I'll do a scouting service they had these newsletters now I'm sure it's all online but back then you had subscribers and you'd stuff the envelopes and and so I learned how to use a computer started beginning at the beginning of teaching myself to type happened then and even as I was writing the scouting report I thought God I just said this guy had uh, you know cat-like quickness I've got to think of a new metaphor you know and so I was already pretty conscious of uh you know, trying to have it be a well-written scouting report, and, and uh, but it really helped me to become independent, and, and I really liked that job. Uh, that it, it would have been hard to make much money. I think I made twelve thousand dollars my first year, and twenty thousand the second year. But I don't think it would have ever gotten much more than that. Uh, and now I don't know how they must have passcodes or something. Now there's still scouting services, but it that it opened up more doors for me in that it, I met hundreds and hundreds of coaches by doing the scouting service. And then when uh, when New Mexico State had a job open in 1994, I was able to apply to it and come back because I, I really loved the Southwest. I missed I missed my friends in El Paso, and uh, and wanted to come back to the Southwest. And I wasn't aware. I guess I was a little bit out of order. I had my my memory was that you were running your scouting service out of Chicago before you came 
Tell us how you got involved with UTEP in the Southwest. Well, uh, yeah, I'll see. The, the scouting service came between the jobs, so after UTEP, but before New Mexico State. So I, I, when I was in the 1980s, someone had told me, well, you should become a graduate assistant. I was trying to get into coaching, and I was struggling to get into coaching. I was a phys ed major, which makes it difficult. You know, there's not as many phys ed jobs, and so I was having trouble uh, trouble getting into coaching. And so I wrote to every college coach in America, every major division one coach. So at that time might've been 250 of them. And every one of them sent me a form form letter back saying, we got your letter, but we don't have any job openings except a man named Judd Heathcote. You know, the old magic Johnson's old coach at Michigan State. He wrote me a handwritten note and said, look, if you want to get ahead in this business, you got to personalize every letter. I'd never heard of that because all my letters said, dear. So I thought, well, somebody's paying attention to me, Judd Heathcote. I never have met, I know he passed away, but I never did meet Judd. But uh, Tim Floyd was Don Haskins' assistant, and he got a hold of my letter, liked the letter. You know, I was already a better writer than I was a coach. I think it was a pretty well-written letter compared to what they normally got. And Tim more or less hired me over the phone for Don Haskins. And then I went down to work, you know, to be the graduate assistant for Don Haskins in 1983. And immediately, I was 23 years old, and immediately the coach in front of me on the sort of the pecking order left. Uh, And so suddenly at age 24, I was a major college recruiter. Now I didn't make it. I was making $10,000 a year, but that's when I signed Tim Hardaway. And so here I was this, you know, living, essentially living a life of poverty in El Paso. But as you know, Andrew, if you're going to live a life of poverty, El Paso or Cruces is a good place to do it because you're not going to freeze to death and burritos are cheap. And, and so I was, I was making $10,000 a year when I signed Tim Hardaway. And and that was a, mostly a stroke of luck, but it led to uh, it led to these other Chicago kids, and my reputation I think blossomed because of the stroke. Of, you know, it was just really fortunate to have discovered Hardaway, and then he just I didn't think he was that good. I thought he was pretty good, but that led to that really opened up a lot of doors. For you me. got a little bit of credibility there in the Chicago market, if you yes, will. yeah, and so suddenly that I was I, I was seen as and people even got the idea that I had somehow taught him to dribble, which is of course a cra- crazy idea, but. You know, so I and I think even by denying that it added to my credibility they thought I was being falsely modest. Oh, no, I didn't teach him to dribble. Wink, wink. Yes, I really did teach him. But of course, Tim was a great dribbler before I ever met him. Was it intimidating at all working for Don Haskins? He was an intimidating presence and a very, very unlike Lou, who was Lou, when I went with Lou Henson. When you'd call him Coach Henson, he would say, call me Lou. But but yeah, Don Haskins was much more intimidating and he operated that way in a way of uh he was a big, gruff guy, a big, burly, gruff guy, and he was short-tempered, and he had very little patience, and he could sort of set you, you know, he could sort of set you back. He, he, he also did a thing, Andrew, you'll think this is funny, he never asked a question of you that he didn't already know the answer to. Like a prosecutor. Well, is that right? I don't know. Well, when, <laughs> when, when people are, you know, the old, the old saying is that um, you, you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to, whether, I guess, is whether it's true a prosecutor yeah, yeah. or a defendant. You know, whether it's cross or, or, yeah. or, or and so direct. you learned you learned early never to you know you were better off telling you were always better off telling Don Haskins the truth and Tim Floyd sort of explained Don Haskins to me and said he's never going to do this and don't worry about that I mean, he didn't even speak to me for a couple of years other than say hello and it just took him you know he was very much about you know what is this guy going to be like in the long run he wasn't into first impressions or so it took him a while a long time to warm up to me and partly I think in retrospect is because. I'm a Chicago guy. I'm not hunting dove like he is. I'm not fishing for trout. I've never fished for a trout. I've only shot a gun once with a cop buddy in Chicago. It scared me. I gave the cookie back to him. And, and none of that really surprises me. And I don't know, you know, I've heard you interviewed before, like I said, and 
Uh, I don't know that anybody's ever asked yet that I remember, but it, there's nothing about that that surprises me. We're going to take a real quick break right now because I get to the point where I have to ask you a question, and there's only two rules. Your answer cannot be Donald Trump, and you've only got five seconds. Wow. All right. It's a lot of pressure. So tell me who is somebody who's making news right now. It doesn't have to be a politician. It could be somebody in popular culture, sports, uh, movies, you name it. Somebody who, when you hear their name, your first thought is, what a clown, what a jackass, what an idiot. This guy's famous for all the wrong reasons. One, two, go. Wow. Well, I I will just say the Twitter sphere. I'm going to include everybody in everybody in Twitter, but I'm trying to think of uh, boy, this is a, this is a lot of pressure. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'd have a hard time take, taking a shot at somebody uh, at somebody like that. But I do I do think that I think Twitter makes people crazy. So well, anyone we'll, on Twitter is crazy. We'll go with that. Uh, right. This week's jabroni of the week is the Twitter sphere. Our jabroni of the week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. Find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. So you're at UTEP for how many years? Uh, eight years. You're at UTEP for eight years. You uh, obviously at some point developed a love or affinity for the Southwest, talking about cheap burritos and good weather. You end up back in Chicago for how long? Now, at some point, you're talking about, you know, kind of living hand to mouth and you're poor. And anytime your parents ever say to you, come Russ, get a real job. Well, that's one of the things I've, I've talked about uh, before and thought about it quite a bit is that uh, and I think it happens in academia too. I was able to get my start in in college basketball, and I made ten thousand the first year and twelve thousand the next year. And I was I was you know I was I was very poor, but I, I think I subconsciously I always knew I could call home and ask my dad, you know, hey dad, can you loan me five hundred dollars for the rent? I never did, but there was I think it gave me a safety net. And I think one of the things that happens I've talked about this before is why so few uh, young black coaches get into the businesses. I think your average young black coach graduates from college or the, the prospective coach. He graduates from college and thinks, well, I could go work for UTEP for $10,000 a year like Russ did, or I can go to El Paso High for 35000 And I think because of the – there used to be something that was going on in college basketball where to get an entry-level position, you had to really work for dirt cheap. And I think that really kept black young black men from doing it. And so for, so for me, I think in, in retrospect now, uh, in, in retrospect now, I was able to take that cheapo job just because I think I felt like I didn't grow up poor and I wasn't worried about getting out of poverty. I was worried about building a career. So it, I think it happens in academia too, Andrew, where, uh, okay, it, it, it's not so expensive to go to New Mexico State, but poor people aren't doing it. It's well-to-do people that go get the master's degree. And, and I think we've, I think we've got to try and work against that in some ways a little bit. I know now that starting salaries are more reasonable. I, I think salaries are actually through the roof a little bit. Now, New Mexico State's not a good example of that because, you, you know, Chris Jans is probably worth twice what he's making. But, you know, we don't – so we still have things pretty well in perspective. But I do think it's a, it's a funny thing when – like, in, I know – Recently, in, in the state of Illinois, the highest paid person in the state 
was a football coach who'd been fired. He wasn't even working at the University of Illinois anymore. So, sorry, what was the question again? Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. I don't remember. Okay, good. Well, let's but go you on. mentioned El Paso High. I'm just going to give a little plug. My mother graduated from El Paso High School, class of 1960. Go Tigers. El Paso, and there you yeah, go. Yeah. So you are at UTEP. You end up going back to Chicago for a little while. Um, we talked about, you know, with your your kind of your claim to fame at UTEP was recruiting Tim Hardaway and all that came after that. How did you end up at New Mexico State? Well, I was doing that scouting service, and I saw, you know, I saw in the newspaper that Tim Floyd had gotten the job. And you know, I worked with Tim at UTEP. He'd gotten the job at Iowa State at the time. And I thought, oh, my God, Iowa State's only four and a half hours from Chicago, and here I've got this great grip on Chicago. My ship has come in. I'm just going to call Tim, who I worked with at UTEP, and and and. and you know, tell him, I, so I called Tim and said, Tim, I'm ready to get back into college coaching. I'm ready to go to Iowa State. He said, Russ, well, I've thought about you, but, you know, I've got all these, I've got 10 seniors on the team and, and I've got to, rec- I'm going to need to recruit junior college players. And I think the best junior college recruiter in the country is Gar Foreman at New Mexico State. I'm going to hire Gar Foreman. And I hung, well, Tim was always a good friend to me. I wasn't mad at him. I was disappointed, but I wasn't angry. But I hung up and thought, wait a minute, if Gar Foreman's leaving New Mexico State, even though they were, we were big enemies. So I called up called New Mexico state and I, they did not know Gar was leaving. I didn't tip my hand, but I was able to, I was able to sort of ingratiate myself and call them and get my name and get my name in front of them. So when the job did come open a week or two later, uh, Jeff Reap, the other assistant called me and said, well, you're in the final two. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Cause I, you know, you know, like I didn't send an application in or anything, but I was on their radar because, of, because they'd seen my work at UTEP. And I, and I was friendly with them because we, 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 it was always one of the things I think the fans don't understand is the fans hate each other at UTEP and New Mexico State, but the players don't and the coaches don't. Like we always got along, you know, the, the UTEP coaches always got along with the New Mexico State coaches. And when I was at New Mexico State, we always got along with the Lobos. We liked them. They were nice guys. We wanted them to lose when we played them, but we wanted them to win every other game so it looked better for us. Right. Uh, it, so go ahead. It, it's funny how, you know, you, we both keep mentioning things. I, I'm sure I've mentioned something that made you think of something. I never knew that Tim Floyd was at Iowa State, but when you mention Iowa State, I just learned about a year or two ago through another Little League friend of ours who is an assistant GM with the Kansas City Royals that another kid we played uh, Little League baseball with, Steve Prom, as of a year or two ago, was actually the head basketball coach at Iowa State. And I had no idea. I didn't know that. And hadn't spoken to him since we were 12 years old. Wow. So interesting things that come up. It's a, it's a smaller world than you think. Exactly. So you end up in New Mexico State in 1994. 19... And and the day I got to campus, I went to, uh, you know, it was probably the only day my picture was in the paper. And I went to an art opening on, so you can already tell, you can already tell I was a weird coach. But at the end of the day, I saw, I saw in the paper that day, there was an art opening on campus. So I went to the art opening and. You know, I don't know anything about art, but I'm interested, you know, and so I was gazing at some painting and a guy came up to me and said, hey, are you the new basketball coach? It was Robert Boswell, the, the novelist and short story writer. And he'd seen my picture in the paper and I got to talking with him and we exchanged numbers and he was used to, you know, he was a season ticket holder, of course. And uh, and but I just got to be friends with him. And after the games. I would go over to Robert Boswell's home, and I, I you know, I would always, I'm, I'm all, I've always been a lightweight, Andrew. I have my one, one, I have one beer a day, but if I have more than one, so I'd go over and have my beer with Robert Boswell after the game, and I'd want to talk about books because I thought, wow, here's a writer, 
and he'd want to talk about the game, you know, and talk about, you know, basketball stuff. But eventually he started... Why they switched to his own defense in the second half, Yeah, right? exactly. And you I'd, wrote that in one of your yeah, books. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. And yeah, he always wanted it. So, and then his wife, Antonia Nelson, the great short story writer, might come in and I'd we could sort of double team him and get the conversation away from basketball. But he started, he invited me to come sit in on his class and I started reading his books and, and Antonia Nelson's books and got very interested. I was always a big reader, but I had never thought about writing. And so I started sitting in on his classes and I was about to, I was kind of burned out and I was about to, to quit and try to go into the graduate school. And then Lou Henson came. And so suddenly I had, I, suddenly everything was fresh and That fun. was going to be my question. I didn't, I moved to New Mexico in 1998, came to Las Cruces in 99. 94, Henson wasn't back yet. You were coaching. No, it your... was with Neil McCarthy. Okay. Yeah. And so he got in, he got in, into uh, hot water with the administration and the athletic director and wound up getting, and I was the only coach that was able to keep his job. You know, usually the new coach comes in and cleans house, but I think Lou wanted some continuity. And that's I, my understanding. I, my understanding was that there's usually one guy that they keep. Yeah, they might for keep, they might keep one guy around and I happened to be that guy. And I knew Lou a little bit, but didn't know him well. And I think, cause I remember when he got the job, I thought, well, I've, I've known Lou for a long time. Never knew him more. I just talked to him for two minutes here and there. If I saw him at a tournament, so did not know him well. Uh, but, you know, so I was always very curious as we'll see what he's really like when the chips are down. But, you know, of course, Lou, Lou never, he was unflappably positive. He never, he never changed. He was always upbeat and happy, you know. Smiling. I remember he's always smiling. Yes. It was, I, I just, I used to think, God, is he an alien? Like, how can anybody stay this upbeat in the face of disaster? But he was, he was the most, and that was where he was very different than Don Haskins, who sort of believed in the, the power of negative thinking that if you think everything's going to go bad, then when things go okay, you know, you'll be, you know, you'll be pleasantly surprised. And if things do go bad, you won't be disappointed. That's an odd way to live your life, but that was essentially how Don Haskins coached. Whereas Lou was just incredibly, you know, you know, he was just cheerful and happy and upbeat. So when you, when you came and you're on staff here at New Mexico state, did you kind of have your same role that you had at UTEP as the Yes, and and, and in retrospect, I didn't know it now, but it was essentially the same job is that, you know, we were recruiting sleeper kind of kids and that, uh, that, you know, we, we had to get the guy who was a little bit short or a little bit skinny or who flunked his summer school class or that kind of thing or a transfer. And so those are the kind of kids that we get at UTEP and New Mexico state. And in retrospect, I think, that's part of why I burned out is I was doing the exact same thing. So you, you know, you can imagine if somebody was, uh, you know, if, if somebody had, had worked in a police department and then switched to FBI, it'd be slightly different work. And it would, but if you just went from, you know, if you just, I, I felt I, in retrospect, now I know I went from one, the same, I did the same job for 14 years. And you mentioned, uh, obviously at UTEP, your, your kind of prize recruit, the one that you kind of hang your hat on was Tim Hardaway. We know that you recruited Sean Harrington here, and we're going to talk about that very soon. If you had to pick one player you recruited and brought to New Mexico State that was the one that really shined or, or went on to the NBA or made a name for himself, the one that you kind of hung your hat on as a recruiter at New Mexico State. Well, I would, would say, well, Charles Gosa was sort of unrecruited. He became the freshman of the year in the conference. But really, it was a, it was a team effort with me and Thomas Trotter. But really, Eric Channing was probably the the gem because if he didn't come to New Mexico State, he would have gone to Wheaton College. In fact, he's the he's the campus pastor for the students at Wheaton College now, which gives you the kind of, you know, kind of, kind of uh, idea of what kind of kid he is. And he's married with five kids. One of his kids is named Lou, has the same birthday as Lou Henson, by the way. But, but Eric would have gone to Wheaton College, if, you know, small college, uh, you know, division three school if he didn't come to New Mexico State. And just by, ch- I, he was a very good, he was a good player. 
But Lou made him a great player. He was just one of those guys that was the perfect player for Lou Henson because he could really shoot, and he was exceedingly smart. And Lou started running a lot of plays for him. He's he's the career sco- leading career scorer in New Mexico State history now, and so it's a funny thing to think that you know when he was academic, you know he first team academic All American, and you know and I used to tease him and say you know because he only got one B in his life. I said, Eric, what's the big deal? I only got one B in my life, also. But all I, the rest of them were C's. All right? the rest were C's for me, but for Eric, they were all they were all A's. And so he was a wonderful kid, you know, the kind of, uh, and, and he, you know, we had, he wasn't the only one, but he was really a wonderful kid, the kind of kid you'd wish you hope your daughter marries. Right. So I, I've heard you talk before about how how understanding Lou was when you decided you wanted to change careers and go get a master of fine arts, and he actually went and talked to the athletic director. They decided they were going to pay for it. You went, you got your Master of Fine Arts, and I didn't realize this, you were in Ireland for how long? Two years. Two years. Yeah. And so you weren't working for New Mexico State yet as a instructor? No, I, let's see, let's see. I went, I got my, my MFA in 2002 and heard about a job in Ireland and went there for two years. And when I came back is when I started adjuncting and part-time instructor and that kind of thing. Okay, so we're going to work up to what I really want to spend. I want to give uh, you a lot of time to talk about, like I said, your your deal with the, writing the book, all the dreams we've dreamed, and all the work you've done on behalf of Sean Harrington. Leading up to that, you lived in Ireland. You wrote the book Patty on the Hardwood. Um, fantastic. Thank Enjoyed you. every moment of it. All right. Coaching Tralee's Frosty's Tigers uh, during the day, if you will, and then hanging out in pubs and playing your fiddle at night. Um, then you wrote uh, 40, minutes in, 40 Minutes of Hell or 40 Minutes in Hell? Of Hell, yeah. And that was no actually... My wife likes to likes to say how I fanboy you and go get all your books and have them signed. And you my, actually did my a, mother's the only other one who's read my books. By the way, <laughs> I don't. I somehow I don't believe yeah, you because yeah. you keep getting published. Somebody's got to be reading them. I did go to a book signing at um, Barnes and Noble here when you when you put that book out. And I was actually thinking on the drive here today. The only other book signing I've ever been to was in the mid nineteen nineties when G. Gordon Liddy released re released his autobiography. Will oh right at the time he was uh, uh, on WJFK in Washington D.C. and all talk fm station was right down the street if you will from my alma mater george mason university i would listen to him every day and mm. he put the book out that's you've got the distinct honor of being the only other person besides a convicted felon who's, it's a it's it's a funny thing to do i've had other people say to me you know i don't really read books but i liked yours it's a, it's i'm never i'm never sure what to, what to take make it of that take one. it the best way possible yeah, yeah. one of the thing that i took most uh two things really from that book was number one how unbelievably well researched it was you obviously spent a lot of time and did some traveling, and you, you, we talked about you know being an English professor. You don't do research in the sense that uh, somebody in the social sciences department might or in another. But for this book, you traveled, you researched, and yeah, I, 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 I was not trained in interviewing people or doing research. Although I'd, I'd been a history major for a little while before I realized, you know, I was a history major my first three years, and then I found out you had to write a hundred-page paper. That was my, my degrees in history. But at, at that time, I thought, a 100-page paper, oh, my God. Well, now that I'm a writer, it doesn't seem so daunting. But at that time, you know, I couldn't. I was typing one finger at a time, and it seemed it seemed uh, overwhelming. Um, but, yeah, I, I was not trained to, to do research. And so, you know, with the Nolan Richardson book, I had to sort of dig into the history of Tulsa and the history of El Paso and the history of Arkansas. And then with the Sean Harrington book, like, I'm interviewing cops and gangbangers and I don't know how to, no one ever told me how to do it. I just, you know, I, well, I just, you just tried to do the best I could. And, and the time period that, when did Haskins leave Utah? Early 2000s? I think he retired, uh, I think he retired in 99. And, Is that right? It, that sounds about right. I don't think I had been here that long. Yeah. And the, the 91 was when I moved to Las Cruces. 
given the timing, was there ever any push to have uh, to try to hire Nolan Richardson at UTEP? No, but there should have been. You know, it's one of the things. It would seem that, like a natural. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think that you know they've gone through they've gone through you know six coaches since since Don Haskins was there, and at the time when at that time Nolan had, was out of coaching and was looking for a job, and he would have loved to have done it. Um, it's one of the things I learned from Nolan Richardson is it's one thing when Texas Western started the five black players in 1966. Most people know that story and won the championship, but they'd never had a black professor at that time. So it's an odd that is always at the forefront sort of, of, of social progress. It seems like, and with, uh, Nolan sort of taught me that is that if you, you've got to have people in color and leadership positions too, you can't just let them be the star basketball players. And so with like with, with UTEP, they never had a black coach in any major, in any sport uh, as a full-time. They had a women's coach that made about $12,000 a year in the mid-80s. But that, I don't count that one. They, but they never, you know, they 40 years after uh, the 1966 team, they still had never had a, a black coach. And so it wasn't until um, Tony Barbie came in that they hired an African-American coach. So I've always thought it was weird. I mean, it's just they would go through football coaches the way you, they change football coaches the way you change socks. And, you know, they've had something like 20 football coaches since 1966, and none of them, you think, none of them have been black. And so I do think that there is sort of that element of, uh, and so I had I had to do all that kind of research to write the Nolan Richardson book. And and um, and I will also say, you know, that, of, of course, you know, I was sort of critical of UTEP there, but, but El Paso and Las Cruces have always been pretty, you know, relatively good places for people of color over, that was the, over the years. That was the other thing I was going to mention, and I'm just going to be real quick about this because I need to move on. The other thing that I didn't know, and I have a family history in El Paso going back probably 150 years. My, my grandparents were small business owners there from the, probably the 1930s and 1970s. I didn't know that El Paso was as progressive as it was on race. It was, it was, it was the first major city in the South to end the Jim Crow laws, and that, which is also related to the Nolan Richardson book talks about that incident. He was indirectly related to that. Yeah, so it's, it was always, a, you know, I, and I think part of it is, uh, you know, I lived in Belfast for a couple of years, you might remember, where the Catholics and the Protestants were mad at each other. But in El Paso, you've just, it's, it's a little bit more of a mix. You know, you've got white, black, and Hispanic and Native American was so. Who's your enemy? It's sort of hard to it's hard to remember when there's so many different. You know, I actually think I don't want to argue about politics, but I think it's a long time in our country that we get rid of. We don't need two parties. We need seven parties. I'm with you 100. <laughs> percent I like the. I like the. Uh, Ireland has eight parties. You know, why do we only have two parties? I like I the know. parliamentary system. Where's my party? I don't know. We could talk about that all day too. Yeah, yeah. So, in I believe is it 1994, 1995, you recruited Sean Harrington to New Mexico State. Yes, uh, and we signed him. In, he was my one of my one of the first players I signed when I came. And you know, I had dis- accidentally discovered Tim Hardaway, and I sort of thought at the time that this guy's going to be the next Tim Hardaway. He could really run a team, and he was lightning quick, and uh, we expected big things of him. But and he played very well always here. But after you know, he led the team in scoring and steals and assists, uh, but he blew out his knee. And so we didn't we didn't bring him back, and that's sort of how the book starts. Well, and I remember one of the main themes, and I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but when you ha- when you found out or heard about what happened to Sean, and I'll let you talk about that. What I took from your big interest in helping him and taking up his cause had a lot to do with a little bit of guilt that you felt about how he came here and how he left. I think that's very true. I, I, I you know, said it was that white guilt. No, it's just Sean guilt, <laughs> you know, and he wasn't the only player that we, 
got rid of and and we had got rid of you know over the years at both utah and new mexico state it's just part of college basketball it's you know we don't think a guy's good enough you don't bring him back on scholarship and so that you know that happened it happened it would have might happen with one kid a year but you know i coached for 14 years so there's a few kids but with with uh with sean when he wound up getting shot in 2014 it was a long time ago already. It was six years ago. But he got shot in 2014, and I thought, oh, my God, I'll, I'll, let me see if I've got his number. I'll have to call him. And uh, But then I started looking, when I was, and he mentioned there was a f- fundraising benefit game for him. I said, I'm going to come to the benefit game. And on the way up there, I started sort of going through. the. I brought the old media guide to give to him, the old basketball program. I started going through it, and then I remembered what had happened. I, you know, it happened when it happened with Sean. I wasn't feeling guilty about it then. It was just part of college basketball, and uh, so I had to sort of by looking through the program, it sort of triggered a lot of, oh yeah, I remember they, that guy. Whatever happened to him? And and so it's, I started remembering what had happened to him. Now, one of the interesting things about in the book, all the dreams we've dreamed. Sean doesn't remember it that way. He thinks he left on his own accord, that it was his decision to leave and that, you know, but I kind of know it's a little bit like, you know, remember you saw your high school girlfriend holding hands with the quarterback on the football team and she's not returning your calls and she's not paying attention to you. And and then you go to her and say, I've decided to break up with you. And she says, oh, yeah, good idea. And then you can go tell all. Well, I think I think I know that what was I know much of college basketball happens through innuendo and indirectly and sort of cloak and dagger kind of stuff. And so we just we we started signing other point guards, and I think Sean saw the writing on the wall. Well, for those of you who have not read the book, Sean was a basketball coach at a high school, had some sort of other job there, wasn't a teacher, and in a case of mistaken identity was driving his teenage daughter to school and saw two gunmen walk up to the car and doing what I would expect a father to do, throws himself on top of his daughter, took a bullet to the back and is paralyzed from the waist down. Well, now he said, yeah, you're you're, you're like him... Andrew, where you say, I mean, he says, you know, I did what any parent would do as if every parent is like Rambo, you know, or a, a Green Beret. Like, I'd like to think that I would do that, that I would save my daughter's life. But when the bullets start flying, I've just never been around when the bullets start flying. I've never, you know, even though I grew up in Chicago, I've never seen anyone shoot anyone. And I've never been at a party where anyone pulled out a gun or seen anyone get, well, you know, as you know, there's several different parts. There's several different parts of Chicago, but uh, yeah, so he was driving his daughter to school at 7.30 in the morning, in a, but he was in a rental car. It's just a nondescript sort of white sedan, and these guys pointed they had the wrong car. And it, it took me a long time to figure out. I could not figure out why are people shooting at 7.30 in the morning. Like, because we always tell, you know, we would tell the players, yeah, look, now, don't be the last one. You know, just you can go have a beer but you're, if you're old enough, but don't you don't be the last one there. Get home by 10 o'clock. Nothing good. You know, Lou Henson used to say, Nothing good ever happens after midnight, and he's and he's and I think he's right about that. But um, it was seven thirty in the morning when Sean got shot, and finally it was through interviewing the, the cops that were involved. Is it's it's heroin sales that if you're trying to buy marijuana, you can go whenever, and if you need a if you need to buy beer, you can wait for the liquor store to open. If you're an alcoholic, but if you're a heroin addict, you want your hit first thing, and you know you're and so feel normal. Th- yeah, these yeah these guys are done. The the heroin sales that happen on the street corners of Chicago are done by nine or ten o'clock. They start early at three in the morning or something like that. And th- so these guys are out at seven thirty in the morning and must have somehow mistaken Sean for somebody else. So he dove on top of Nadja, took a bullet in the back, and he'll never walk again. And given this is a a work of nonfiction, I would say that this is probably of the three of your books I've read the best storytelling. 
you go up there, you interview all kinds of people, and it's so easy, you know, scrolling through my Facebook feed, lo- watching the news, and on basically any given weekend, you can see on Monday morning there were 87 people shot in Chicago and seven people were shot and killed and all these things. And it can be really easy for your first response, your first thought to be, my God, what's wrong with these people? They just shoot each other all the time. Yeah, yeah. And then you read your book, All the Dreams We've Dreamed, and I can't, I don't even remember the number of players that you that you followed who within a year or two end up shooting or getting shot. And it paints it a, in a different light when you, you're thinking about these kids. They're kids. They're teenagers. They're basketball players with friends and girlfriends, and they have dreams. Like the book says, All the Dreams We've Dreamed. And for the love of God, by the end of the book, how many of the players you covered were shot and killed? Well, six six of Sean's players have been shot and killed. But since that time, another since the book came out, a kid named Cedric Williams got killed. And then some of your listeners will remember, if they're basketball fans, about a month ago, Patrick Beverly, the NBA star who went to Marshall High School also, he left the bubble. You know, they have the NBA bubble where they're quarantined or whatever in, in Orlando. He left the bubble to go to a... a to attend to a family matter, it said. What turned out, it was another Marshall player. His his teammate at Marshall got, had gotten murdered. And so, by my count, there's eight Marshall players in the last six years who have been murdered. And it's it's really, to me, it's really disturbing. I mean, I don't, one of the things I've tried to do in the book is not to make it seem like they were that remote. I wanted to humanize it. And I, I started out thinking, frankly, that it's these these damn cops. And then the more I dug into the, you know, I, I know it's popular to bash the police now after seeing, you know, if, if you've watched this video or that video, but in my experience and in Sean's experience, the cops did a pretty good job. They caught the shooters pretty quickly. They treated him with, you know, they, for the most part, they, when they got to the scene, they sort of tried to jerk him out of the car. Cause I think they just thought he must be a gang banger. He said, Whoa, hold that. on, hold on officer. But, but I, it, for the most part, the cops were heroic in Sean's situation, but they're overwhelmed. Also, there used to be 120 murder detectives in Chicago. And now there's 80. Uh, well, I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm going to cut you off right here because I don't want to get done here without giving you an opportunity. And like I said earlier, other than doing what you need to do to make a living, it seems to me that your your passion and you have spent all your time these last few years doing what you can do to help Sean. So this is the time where I want you to pat yourself on the back to, and and just <laughs> and tell us all that because you do so much and not only do this basketball in the barrio, but you have done so much for Sean. I want you to talk about some of the charity tournaments you've done, some of the fundraising, some of the things that you've been able to do for a guy who loses uh, loses his job because he can't do it anymore, then doesn't have health insurance. Welcome to America. Just take a few minutes to tell us what you're doing. Yeah, he, he, he quickly within 90 days, his paycheck stopped and his insurance stopped. And it just made me crazy that, you know, I just thought this guy ought to be on the front of Time magazine for his heroism. And so uh, pretty quickly, I was able to get, you know, got, you know, Mario Mochia, the, the athletic director, has been really great. And so we've had three coaches, Marvin Menzies and Paul Weir and now Chris Jans have all been really supportive. You know, Chris Jans awarded him a, a, a WAC championship ring last fall. But uh, we, so we've done all, one of the things that uh, we've had to do besides pay for his medical bills is we, we, I've came to realize that he couldn't get in and out of his apartment on his own. He lives with his aunt Jackie in an 800 square foot apartment. If you can imagine two people, one in a wheelchair, but across the hall, there's a, an apartment that it's the only wheelchair accessible one in the building and he can get in and out of it. So we've, we, we've been doing a fundraiser. We're not done, but we're three fourths of the way done of raising money. It's a, if, if your listeners would go to a, if you just look for a, on GoFundMe, if you can spell Sean Harrington, it's S H A W N 
that kind of Sean. And so we've, we've raised three fourths of the, of the price of the condo. And, um, and we're, we're not, we're not done yet, but we just felt like until he can get in and out of an apartment on his own, he, how can he ever go forward with his life? And so like this quarantine stuff is driving me nuts. Like I can't get out. It's too hot to get out of the house and you know, and, and that'll all end soon. But with Sean, he would go days and weeks at a time, even before the the coronavirus, where he couldn't get out of the house. And right, we started the the fundraising for the condo on the GoFundMe back in January. And three days later, it was going pretty well. After three days, and then Kobe's helicopter crashed, and so suddenly we're out of we're no we're no longer in the news anymore. And then the virus happened, and then I thought, well, the virus. But then people are losing their jobs, and so it's been we've been trying to raise money in the teeth of a presidential election and the coronavirus and Kobe's helicopter crash and just seemed like everything. But it's, it's, we're, I'm in it for the long haul. And one of the things it's, I've, you know, people who know me, Andrew would agree with this is I can get a little bit uh, obsessive about things. That's how I became a pretty good fiddle player. And it actually works well for writing, but I'm not, I'm actually not writing much these days. I spend all my time, trying to, you know, trying to complete this Sean Harrington quest and the Sean Harrington project. And it's become the focus of, you know, of, of everything I do. And it's all I can do not to go on Facebook every minute and post about Sean Harrington. But we've had great, other people have really come through for us. Like Steve Kerr tweeted about it. I've never met Steve Kerr, but he somehow got a hold of it and tweeted about it. And, boom, boom, you know, suddenly we got a big, uh, we got slammed with donations and then Beto O'Rourke tweeted about it. we got a big, you know, he's very interested in gun violence stuff. But one of the other interesting things about Sean Harrington is, is there be, there's people on both sides of the, of the gun. Uh, there's not that there's only two sides, but there's the gun debate is a complicated one, but there's, I've gotten letters, two letters from NRA guys that have said, you know, how can I help? And he's such a hero and, and that kind of thing. And so it's not just, you know, there's, one of the things with Sean Harrington, I think it's so compelling is no matter what your politics and no matter what your take on, you know, race or violence or, or, or gun violence or second amendment or, or poverty or social programs, just about everybody agrees. This guy's a hero. We ought to take care of this guy. And if we want to help Sean Harrington, we can do it. How? Well, it's on, it's on the, if you go to GoFundMe uh, and then do a search for Sean Harrington, it's S H A W N. And then Harrington is H A R R. Uh, Harrington. And so, and we've done, we've actually done pretty well considering all the, considering, you know, with poor Kobe Bryant and the, and all the people dying of coronavirus and the panic about that and those kinds of things. But we, so we've done, we've done okay, but we're in it for the long haul. And, uh, and he's actually, you know, we've made a down, big down payment. He's going to move in in a couple of weeks. Well, we are just about done right before we go. I want to get a couple of quick hitters. These aren't tough ones. Just need well, quick... you put me on the spot with who Who do I think is a buffoon out there? Well, these are real quick ones. Hemingway or Steinbeck? Uh, Hemingway. I'm a Steinbeck guy, but okay. But I love Steinbeck. That's a, see, that's a tough question for me. I've read everything by both of them. Magic or Bird? Uh, I'll say Magic. Michael Jordan or LeBron? I'll go with LeBron for his, his, uh, his interest in social justice. Based just on their college performances, if you had to draft one... Would you take Michael Jordan or Len Bias? Bill Walton. Ladies and gentlemen, he answered it in, in a way only Coach Russ Bradbird can. I still call him Coach. He's Professor Bradbird. Russ, thank you so much for being on our show. This has been uh, episode four of season one of the Square Peg podcast, Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. 
Make sure you join us next week where my guest will be someone who used to run the streets and now runs the ropes as a professional wrestler, Albuquerque's own Danny G. Wow. This has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled? <laughs>